saw the movie. I mean, a few of us have read the book. Uh, it said in that point in the movie when two solicitors have come and they've gone to Scrooge and they said, Scrooge, you have so much money, could you make a donation to help the poor at Christmas to have some food and some blankets? Would you do that? And Scrooge says, I, I don't ha- enjoy Christmas at all and nor will I help anybody who is idle. That's how he views people who may be in need. Obviously, in Scrooge's warped sensibilities, people, if they are in need, must be lazy. And that's how Scrooge got by in life. He has become, in the Western world, the symbol of the ungenerous spirit, has he not? That's, we all know what a Scrooge is. We know somebody who has no generosity to them to be someone who's a Scrooge. And usually there's a set of underlying principles that... Uh, makes the ungenerous heart what it is. There's a, there's a sense among ungenerous folks that when they give, they are somehow doing something that isn't good. They're actually doing something that is perpetuating something bad. And Scrooge sort of lets his mind be known to these guys looking to take, if you will, a benevolence offering uh, from him that he feels like anybody who's poor or anybody who is in need obviously doesn't work very hard. And we know that that is not necessarily true. Many people have an ungenerous heart because undergirding that set of ungenerous principles in their life is the idea that if they were to give their money to a cause or certain causes, that money would just be squandered anyways. It would go to perpetuate the problem. So why give? Another thing that can undergird the ungenerous spirit, the ungenerous heart, is the idea that, well, that's a problem, but it's not my problem. The problem that I would be giving towards was created by a set of circumstances and a set of choices that people made, and therefore, it's not my problem. I will not give. I will not be generous towards that certain place. And, of course, Scrooge says something that speaks very much into modern-day American culture when he said to those solicitors that day, I don't make myself merry at Christmas, and I cannot afford to make idle people merry. And then he goes on to say, but don't worry, I take care of people through my taxes. I'm truly generous, don't you know? He says, I pay enough in taxes to support certain folks and certain institutions already. I don't need to have a generous heart. Can you begin to see how the ungenerous spirit and the ungenerous heart has a certain set of principles that undergird it that allows people to continue in their ungenerosity? There are things that people tell themselves to allow themselves to have an ungenerous spirit. And there's more even still. And we're going to be getting into some of those undergirding principles for ungenerosity today or being, being a, a person who, who is stingy or miserly today uh, in the scriptures. The key for us as people who are Christian, people who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, people who say that we serve God, is to understand that God desires to make of us people who excel in generosity. That's God's heart. Our heart might be stingy and cold and hard. We may not have a very generous spirit, but it is part of our redemptive uh, plan, part of God's redemptive plan, part of, part of what God wants to make of us are people who excel in generosity. But I believe, as I've mentioned some of these undergirding principles of not being generous this morning, that we as Christians sometimes have to overcome our objections to generous living before we can become people who are immersed in giving. We, we, have, to, we have to get rid of those objections 
in order to do what God calls us to do and be people who excel in generosity. So we're going to dive into this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 today because the Apostle Paul writes some words that attack those undergirding principles of not being generous and begin to give us some very strong principles for why we should be people of generosity. Now, I'm going to give you the backstory. Are you in 2 Corinthians 8? Are you there? Now, look down, because if you're in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're talking about food sacrifice to idols, and you're going to be very confused, and I don't want that. All right? We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This passage could also be very confusing, so let me set the background for you for just a second before we read it. Paul, the apostle or the missionary to the Gentile world, he was taking up a collection for the churches, the Christian churches, in and around Jerusalem. Okay, so half a world away, at least in terms of how they viewed the world at that point. You see, during the time of Emperor Claudius, there were multiple famines that took place in the provinces of Egypt and Israel. Multiple famines. And Roman records show that because of these famines, there were a lot of negative circumstances in those areas. Of course, when a famine comes, people starve. But the people who didn't starve were then forced into very high rates of taxation. There was mass repossession of goods and property. And there was a, a huge number of loans defaulted on. In essence, there was a Great Depression taking place in and around Jerusalem in the 20 years after the life of Christ. And we know from the book of Acts that Paul and the association of churches around Syria had already taken an offering and taken it down to the churches in and around Jerusalem. But now it is years later, and if 2 Corinthians is written in 55 AD, as many scholars believe, that means that the people in and around Jerusalem have sort of been in their Great Depression for about eight years. It's been many, many years that they have been living uh, 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 below a a stable place in economic life. So Paul is asking the churches that he is associated with in Asia Minor and Greece to begin to give money to these churches to support their Jewish brothers and sisters and make sure that they have enough. And that's what he's writing about when we pick up in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says to the Corinthian churches, Now, as you excel in everything, in faith and in speech, in knowledge and in utmost eagerness, and in our love for you, we want you to excel also in this generous undertaking. I don't say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but to even desire to do something. Now finish doing it. For if eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may also be for your need, in order that they may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. 
So Paul is making an appeal to the churches in and around Corinth to participate in this massive offering that he is giving. Now, I know that some of you might wonder, wow, that was the ancient world. I mean, how can they make sure that the money is guaranteed? Well, we know from the book of Acts and from the book of 2 Corinthians that for every church group, because there were, a, there were a series of churches in every major area that Paul had ministered, for every group of churches that were giving money, they were sending representatives with that money to ensure its safe receipt in Jerusalem. So even the early church was very much concerned that if they were giving towards a cause, that they would want the money to get there. So one of the objections that we have right away is, well, how do we know that they actually got the money? Somebody could have pocketed it. Well, Titus was leading a coalition of people who were actually taking that money to Jerusalem. Now look down at verse 7, if you will, because Paul gets right to the heart of the matter. He says to the Corinthian churches, folks, you excel in so many of the good Christian virtues. You have faith and you have love and your words are, are, are good and, and, and we love you because of who you are. You've got a lot of good things going on for you as faithful people. But now it's time to excel in generosity. Now it's time to take your Christian life to another level. And I think he says this because it's, it's, it's very clear to so many who have lived this Christian life that generosity is often the last virtue that takes hold in a life lived for God. Being a generous person is often the last thing that we as Christians grab hold of and say, that's who I'm going to be because that's who God has been for me, abundantly generous. And all those things that Paul mentions to the Corinthian churches here are intangible things, speech and faith and love and eagerness in terms of their relationship to God. But money, cold hard cash, is very, very tangible. You actually have to pull that out and hand that to somebody. You know, it's very easy to say, I love God. It's very easy to say, I, 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 I worship God. It's very easy to say, I serve the Lord with all my heart. It's very easy to say that I'm a person of faith. But it's really another thing entirely to let God control our money. Another thing entirely. And I don't think Paul's coming down on the church. None of this is said with harshness. In fact, a lot of this is said as, as like a loving father trying to uh, genuinely guide his children towards a better understanding of who they're supposed to be. But he's really saying, you've got a lot of great virtues, but now a virtue that I want you to grab hold of, a Christian virtue, is generosity. And that's so hard for so many of us, because it's tangible. It's giving away that which we have, and that's which we place so much of our security and safety in in this world. So many of us have so many good things going for us, but generosity is not one of them. We sit in church and we sing the song, Jesus paid it all, but we amend the words just a little bit. We sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, but God don't claim my bank account or I will just say no. That is who we are. We're people who who will will worship in church and we'll serve in the church and, and we'll do nice things for people, but God don't ask that of me. Don't ask my bank account. That's mine. Because it's tangible. That's something that you can feel in your hands. Paul's saying to them in the inverse way, you say that you love God and you love people. But if you refuse to meet a need when you can, your faith and love aren't all that genuine. Look at verse 8. That's what he's saying. I don't say this as a command, but I'm really testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. Paul has just taken up a collection in the region of Macedonia. 
And he's making it clear in the early parts of chapter 8 that the Macedonian Christians are poorer than church mice. They don't have two nickels to rub together, yet they have taken a huge offering to send to Jerusalem. They're in a very depressed area themselves, but God laid it on their hearts to do some sacrificial giving. And Paul makes it very clear in this passage, and we're going to see this a little bit further down. He's not asking the Corinthian church to make a sacrificial gift here. He's not doing that. In fact, I believe that in many cases, that's not the role of a Christian leader, is to call people to sacrificial giving. At least if I'm reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I believe that it's God's job to call people to sacrificial giving. Because if you hear about abuses in the church, it's usually that a Christian leader is calling somebody to sacrificial giving, and it's usually done on television. And that sacrificial giving can sometimes lead to a very depressed state of finances for people who didn't have any money in the first place. But a preacher has promised something like, well, if you sacrifice and you give this, God will return that money tenfold. That's abuse. And so I just want to say to you, as a church, we're not going to call you to a ton of sacrificial giving. But if God calls you to some sacrificial giving like he did the Macedonians, you should do it. You should do it. But we're going to see in chapter 8, there's another type of giving that Paul's talking about here. Before we get a little bit further down, I want to tell you the why. Why does Paul call them to participate in this generous act towards the church in Jerusalem? And that comes in verse 9. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you may become rich. I don't want us to feel that this story is old hat. I don't want us to start thinking that this is a story that that we have a handle on. Just think about it for a minute. The eternal Son of God, the one who was there at creation, who lived in all the splendor of heaven, all the riches of heaven, all the prerogatives of power that exist in heaven, came to earth as the earthly son of a carpenter. Upon reaching the appropriate age, he started his ministry, where he often slept out of doors and was completely dependent upon the generosity of others to support his ministry. And his end game was not to build an army or a coalition so that he might live as a king. His end game was to die on a cross like a common criminal so that once and for all, sin and death might be defeated that you and I could have a relationship with God, that you and I can have the hope and joy and peace that we've been talking about, that you and I could have the hope of heaven. He became poor so that we might become rich. That's who our Savior is. That's who Jesus is. I mean, Paul lays down the trump card immediately. For those of you who play euchre, it was the bower. He lays it. He's ready to take the hand because he realizes these people need to be involved in this act of generosity. And if anybody who calls themselves Christian can't get themselves to that point, let us just remember that Christ was rich in heaven, but he became poor for our sake. He left it all. He paid it all. And all to him we owe. We became rich through his choice of poverty and death. What excuse might you offer, dear Corinthian churches, for your stingy ways? It would make absolutely no sense. Now, Paul's going to continue here to anticipate now some of the objections that might come. Let's look down at our passage once more at verse 10. And in this matter, I'm giving my advice. 
It's appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. So he says, listen, God laid this on your heart in the first place, but now it's appropriate for you to finish what you started, the beginning of verse 11. Now finish doing it. You see, this is the major objection that most of us have to giving, and it's not so much as an objection as it is just the, the people who we are and the way that we think. Many times we think we are generous people because we'd like to be generous people. We think we're generous simply because we would like to be generous. We say things to ourselves like, perhaps next year I can begin giving towards that cause. If I had a little more money this year, I would certainly do this. Or how about, I wish I had something I could give, but I just don't right now. Now, I want to tell you, for some people at some stages of their life, that is absolutely true. And it would never be my desire from the pulpit to try to bully you into giving that which you don't have. Some people just don't have an extra dime. And that's just the case. That's the state that they're in. But most of us, when we say, I wish I had something to give, but I just don't right now, are just saying that we're really not interested in reprioritizing our lives in order to give right now. That's what most of us are saying. We're really not interested in doing the hard work of reprioritizing so that we might become people of generosity. For many of us, generosity might just mean reprioritizing to the point that we put something on hold or less of a priority on something else. You know, I've been to so many youth conferences over the years. In fact, if I hadn't gone to places like Acquire the Fire and, and Passion Conference and some of these other places, I probably maybe wouldn't be in ministry because there were so many powerful things that I learned. But every single year, it seemed, there was the challenge to the youth kids or the young adults, if you just stopped drinking your coffee and pop for a month and then gave that money to a charitable donation, could you imagine what could be done in this world? If you just put your Mountain Dew money and your Starbucks money aside and drank some Folgers and water instead, right? What we could do on this planet. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's stupid. How dumb. But it really is so true. It was stupid and dumb because I like Mountain Dew and Starbucks, right? I just didn't want to reprioritize my life in any way. And so many times we do that for a month and, and the youth kids or the young adults, they'd come back and for a full month I didn't drink Starbucks. I drank Mark's brand coffee. And they're so proud of themselves, right? But we really could reprioritize our lives just a bit and give a little bit more. And that's what Paul's saying. It's not just about your intention, it's actually about doing something about your intention, how many times have some of us said to ourselves, this is the year I'm going to start sponsoring a child in a developing country, or this is the year that I'm going to start giving more towards missions, or this is the year that I'm going to start giving and volunteering at the food bank, or this is the year I'm going to make sure that I give a higher percentage of my income to the church, and we think to ourselves, this is the year, but nothing changes, because the generosity of who we are has not yet quite taken hold because we're not ready or willing to reprioritize the way God is calling us to. 
Paul says in a very loving way, and I hope what I, what's coming across to, to, from me to you this morning comes across in a loving way. It certainly can't come across in a fatherly way. I'm too young for that. But I hope it comes across in a loving way. It's time to do that which God's called you to do. It's time to finish it. It's time to make it happen. Stop waiting to next year. Stop waiting for your ship to come in in order to start being those generous people. Paul says, Corinthians, it's time to give what you intend to give. Don't just make it about your speech. Make it about your action. He also takes another concept away from these people that is sometimes an objection that we have to giving. Look back down at verse 11. Now finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. And on to verse 12. For if eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. How many times have we told ourselves, you know what, I have so little to give, it wouldn't make a difference. I I don't have a ton to give. Even if I were to reprioritize my entire life, I would still have so little to give as to it being of no account. And Paul says, if you really want to live, if you really want to live in the spirit of generosity, if you really want to excel as a person of giving, give according to what you have with eagerness. Eagerness is the measure of generosity, not amount. Eagerness is the measure of your generous spirit, not the amount that you give. That's what Paul's saying to these Corinthians. He says, according to your means, just give and give happily that you can take your money and put it in a place where people have lived in such a depressed state, in a great depression for these eight years. You can bless your brothers and sisters in Christ as long as you're eager. The amount of the gift does not matter. Just give according to what God's told you to give and what you can give. This also goes against the objection that people raise, well, if you budget it, then it's not really generous. Have you ever heard this? You, you should just give what the Lord told you that day. That's generous. You should, just, you, you should just allow the Spirit to speak to you, and then however many singles are in your wallet, that's what you give. There's this weird thing going on, and I, I apologize, we're a charismatic church, but there, there's a weird thing going on in, in, in charismatic churches that if you plan it, it's somehow not of the Spirit. Oh, I got some of you, didn't I? I heard the rumble. Oh, right? There's this weird, the weird idea that we sometimes have among churches that believe in, in the full works of the Holy Spirit that if we somehow plan it, it, it's not good. And Paul's saying, give according to your means. That means that you actually know what's in the budget. You actually have budgeted. You've looked at what you can do to be generous, and you've done it intentionally. So generosity is not about The amount and generosity is not about if you plan it ahead of time. It's just that your spirit is eager to give. Budgeting to be generous is not wrong. In fact, I would argue that it probably allows most people to give more over a lifetime if they budget and make sure that they can be generous in a way that makes sense. People who just pull out the singles in their wallet because they were stirred in that moment, that's one thing, and maybe God does that. And I, In fact, God does do that. I know he's done it to me. There was a great story of Benjamin Franklin who was pretty much an agnostic. He didn't really believe in much of anything. And there was a great preacher back in the late 1700s. His name was George Whitfield. 
And Whitfield would go to these open-air meetings, and he was said to have such a gift of speech that he could preach to open-air crowds of 10 and 20,000 and be heard by all. This was pre-microphone, pre-electricity. He was such a dynamic and powerful voice, but also a dynamic and powerful speaker. Benjamin Franklin tells the story that even though he was sort of an agnostic, he loved to go and hear Whitfield speak, but he made sure that he always would leave his pocketbook at home. Because at that day and age, when Whitfield spoke, he would preach, and then he'd take the offering afterwards. And Franklin said, I'd always be so moved that I'd give whatever I had. So he told a friend, you know what, I left my pocketbook at home this one time that I went to hear Whitfield preach. He said, and he preached so powerfully, I ended up giving my watch. (laughs) That was Benjamin Franklin, right? There's nothing necessarily bad about that, giving in the moment, but I just want to encourage you. Paul is telling this church, if you want to be generous, give what you can. And if you don't know what you can give, it's harder to be generous, isn't it? If you really don't know where your finances are, it's tougher to be the people that God wants us to be. Paul goes against another objection. Look down at verse 13 with me. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you. Did you see that? He says, I'm the Christian leader here. I'm your apostle. I'm above your pastors. I'm the bishop, if you will. And he says, my goal in doing this is not to put pressure on you so others can be relieved. So many times we look at that and go, not my problem. And Paul's going to say, no, it is your problem, but my goal is not to make it hard on you so that others can be blessed. Give what you can. If it's a small amount, it makes no difference. I want to reread the last verse and a half of this passage because it's really where it comes all together. Look down with me. I do not mean that there should be relief for others, verse 13, and pressure on you, but it is a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need so that their abundance may be for your need in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, The one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. What's Paul saying? He's saying, folks, it's ours to live generously. It's God's to make it work. It's ours to just be generous and not worry about what God's asked us or told us to give. God's going to lay things on our heart, and we're supposed to just do it and allow him to make it work so that there's balance in our lives and balance in the lives of others. That's who God is. God's the Fed. He gets to direct the economy. We're just giving in to what God's trying to do. That passage that he quotes is from Exodus chapter 16, when the people of Israel were out in the wilderness and they were hungry. And the story goes from Exodus 16 that they would go out each day and they were allowed to collect manna. And they weren't supposed to collect more than an omer per person. You say, how big's an omer? I don't know. But it was something. A container of manna. But then the Bible says something incredible. Some people, and it doesn't say why, didn't have the ability to collect as much. Isn't this interesting? So the people who collected and collected and collected and collected, even when they went back to their tent, something miraculous happened and there was still just an omer there. But the people who went out, maybe they had the bad back, maybe they were too too elderly and infirm to make sure that they got a lot. Whatever they collected, they still had enough to eat. 
That's the miracle that took place not only of the manna, but God making sure that everybody, regardless of their ability to collect the manna, had enough. God is trying to speak to us through his word that it's not about trying to make it work. It's just about giving what we can, and God will make it work. He's going to take that gift and bless the people that he means to bless. And I have yet to hear too many stories of people who went poor because they gave too much. I've never heard the testimony of, I gave too much, and God didn't take care of me, and I'm angry and I'm bitter. It doesn't happen. Because God is the one directing the economy of our lives. He just wants us to have a spirit of generosity. And our present abundance should be a tool in the hands of God to be used to bless people. Our present abundance should be a tool in the hands of God in order to bless people. How can we make this practical, especially in this season of giving? Well, I want to tell you, so many of us are driven by the desire to give our kids an awesome Christmas. I know I am. I want to see the excitement on their faces as they open those gifts on Christmas morning. I want to look at, have them look at me and go, yeah, that's what I want to see. It's fun to give good gifts to your children. And I want to tell you this morning that that's not evil. Our Father in heaven loves to give good gifts to us. He loves for us to look to heaven and go, yeah, that's who he is. He put that in our spirit to want to give good gifts to our children. That's, that's wonderful. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I want to tell you today, perhaps this year, as you're doling out the Benjamins and the Ulysses, perhaps there's a point that you say, we're stopping here because there's some Benjamins and there's some Ulysses and there's some Andrews and some Alexanders that can go towards somebody else who needs it. My kids have plenty. Perhaps there's some of you here that your kids do not want for anything as the year goes along. And you love seeing the beautiful expression of being able to give them good toys and gifts at Christmas. But perhaps if they looked at you this year and said, hey, where's such and such? You could say to them, well, you know what, honey? We gave you a lot of good gifts this Christmas, and we didn't get you such and such. But we as a family were able to give to little boys and girls who weren't going to have a great Christmas. Is that worth it? No! Well, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Wouldn't it be incredible if we taught our kids a lesson like that one Christmas? Wouldn't that be such a God thing if in our, our, our culture today that is so driven by stuff and getting, we could teach our children such a valuable lesson? Some of us, our kids could have a monumental Christmas and we could still bless so many others. Perhaps guys, men, fathers, dads in the congregation, those of you who are under 45, it might be that video game system that you have been longing for for a long time. For those of you who like to work in your garage or work in your shop, maybe it's that power tool or maybe it's that set of whatever that you need to complete your set. Perhaps you could look at your wife this Christmas and say, wife, I can get by with these tools. I can get by with this game system for another year. Maybe what you'd normally 
give me, we can give to a missionary. What do you think? I'll still take the wool socks, but after that, how about a missionary? Or perhaps some of you ladies could look at your husbands and say, babe, I know that you like to get me a nice piece of jewelry every year, but here's a list of other things that I want and need that maybe aren't as expensive because I've had a coworker who's fallen on hard times and I'd like to help them this year. I mean, wouldn't that be a season of giving? Wouldn't it be neat if we gave gifts into people's lives that we weren't obligated to do? Things that God had laid on our hearts that we would normally say, I wish I could help. Oh, I'd love to do something to help them. Well, do it. Do it, says the Apostle Paul. Do it, some of you, the Spirit of the Lord is saying to you right now. Do it. Take your eagerness and see if it's earnestness, using two words from this passage. See if the generosity of your heart really can actually be generosity in action. Some of you high schoolers and middle schoolers who are in the room today, what if you took that extra money that you're saving and saving for that game or that item, and instead of just spending it on yourselves, you got a gift for somebody who you knew at school wasn't going to get much for Christmas, if anything, and you gave that to them on the last day before Christmas break. And then you wrote a note about how God loves them. Pastor Matt, that'd be weird, right? <laughs> it would be weird in how righteous and awesome it is if you did that. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be weird in the right way? We Christians are certainly weird in the wrong ways a lot of times. Wouldn't that be weird in the right way? If we spent a little money on somebody that we knew their family had none, and we gave them a gift and told them that Jesus loved them, well, they might tell their friends that Jesus loves them. That'd be great too. See, I imagine that some of us in the room today might be feeling how I felt when Ron Luce was telling me to stop drinking Mountain Dew and give it to the poor. Because these ideas, for some of us, are so radical as to be outside of the box of which we can conceive. But I want to tell you, that's who our Lord Jesus is. He came up with ideas that were so radical and outside of the box that so many people could not conceive them. It's inconceivable that the Lord of heaven would leave heaven in order to become a baby in such humble means. That's inconceivable. That's giving more than anyone else has ever given. It's inconceivable. And I want to ask you today, can the earnestness of your heart, can the earnestness of my heart be increased as we generously give in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray this morning for a little bit of holy uncomfortability in the way that we presently conduct ourselves. Lord, I pray that there would be a sense in each one of us that we have the opportunity to mirror Jesus in the way that we generously give to others. And that, Lord, it doesn't start at, stop, it doesn't stop at words of encouragement 
and nice sayings and smiles. It doesn't stop there. But instead, Lord, could we recognize the truth of your word, that that should extend even to the tangible things that we give towards others. It should extend, Lord. Father God, may we mirror your son. May we mirror him. And may the words that we've spoken today just not be a set of nice ideas for another year. But instead, Lord, would we take a hard look at who we really are and ask, Lord, do I excel in generosity the way that you, O Lord, would desire that I excel in a spirit of generosity? I'm going to ask our elders to step into the aisles today. Here at Victory Life, we open up this, our altar, for people to kneel and pray at the end of every service. Some people come to kneel and pray because they have physical need. Some people are praying for loved ones who have needs. Some people need God's provision, and they come and pray. And others use this altar because God's speaking to their hearts, and they feel like it's a good time to move and kneel before the Lord and say, God, I'm going to do what you've called me to do today. And I know today that there will be people who come because they want to pray and say, I have need, Lord. I need you to touch my body. I need you to touch my family. I need you to do a miracle in my life. And that's wonderful. And I know that it could be incredibly uncomfortable, though, today to come and say, Lord, you've convicted my heart about giving. Because that's just so personal. And so I encourage you today whether you come to this altar or that you're in your seat, that you make a move towards God. And if God is convicting your heart to such a place where he says, move towards me, kneel before me, allow the elders to pray for you today that you would obey what I've called you to do, God bless you for your boldness. But I encourage each and every person in this place today to pray in these moments and ask God, God, what would you have me do? Reveal it to me by your spirit. The altars are open, and if you have physical need, or if you're responding to something God's speaking in your heart, please come. Allow the elders to anoint you with oil and pray for you in this moment.
to sing that song in just a moment again. And if the Lord's been stirring your heart to be somebody who's a person of generosity, somebody who's a giver today, then we just ask that you lift that up to the Lord and mean it sincerely from your heart when you say, Lord, I want to be like you. I want to give because you gave first. Let's just sing that together. Oh, Lord, I want to be more like you.
Father God, we pray for this place in this church today because you've spoken to individuals and I know, God, that you're laying things upon our hearts as acts of obedience that we need to follow through for you. And now, Lord, I pray for us as a community. May we be a community where those who have an abundance have just enough. And may those who have very little want for nothing. That is your church. That is your people. Not, Lord, that we give in order to have pressure put on ourselves, but that seeing your vision for your church, we make sure that our abundance goes to those who have need and that the ones who have too little don't have too little in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for being in our midst today. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you, by your spirit, speak into our hearts and you're consistent in what you say. We ask, Lord, that we would continue to minister in your kingdom as you call each and every one of us to. And that, Lord, this would be a true season of giving. We pray, Lord, that you would dismiss us now with your blessing, that we would go and show your love to each person we come in contact with. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. You are dismissed.